This sermon, A Promise for the Ages, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, October 17th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. To the book of Haggai, chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23, as you do, listen to this newspaper article. Does everybody know what a newspaper is? Okay, good, just checking. It says, the world is too big for us. Too much going on, too many crimes, too much violence and excitement. Try as you will, you get behind in the race. It's an incessant strain to keep pace, and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries in you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly, you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure much more. The newspaper is the Atlantic Journal. The date is June 16th, 1833. 188 years later, the world is even bigger. More information, more choices, more opportunities, more problems, more distractions, more feelings of irrelevance and insignificance in a world that more and more rejects with hostility the one who is our very life. And through it all, if you're like me, you tend to drift farther and farther away from what God has called you to, from what God has called us as a local church to. And that's why 2,500 years later, Haggai is relevant. Today we wrap up the inspiring and challenging book of Haggai. Just a quick recap before we get into this final passage. If you remember chapter one, God rebuked Israel for neglecting his purposes for them. He led them out of exile so that they might rebuild his temple and live a life of worship with him once again. And so he rebuked them. And of course, Israel responded. The spirit filled them. And Israel responded in repentance. And then in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we saw God encourage his people not to be discouraged about their progress in his work, not to look at the temple and go, wow, I remember the former glory. No, they might not perceive it, but, but God is leading to all that he has them doing is leading to a greater glory, in fact, a glory that they couldn't even begin to imagine in the moment. And then, of course, 
last week in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, there was a warning, if you will. God warned them, on your own, you are neither sufficient nor worthy for the work that I've called you to, but I will bless you. And now, three and a half months since God's first rebuke in chapter one, we have the fourth and final word that comes from the Lord. It's not a rebuke. He has already encouraged them, and he has warned them. This is a promise, and what a promise it is. So would you stand with me, and let's read the word of the Lord together. Haggai 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdom, the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you please be seated? Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Lord, We ask right now that you would gather us to yourself, that you would clear our thoughts, that your spirit would come and and still the noise of last week, to still the noise of the week ahead, to still the noise of what comes in just another hour into our lives. Lord, would would you focus us on what you have. You, you have gathered this group of people. We, we pray for those who aren't with us this morning. We pray for those who are sick, who are traveling. But Lord, this group of people, you have gathered and you have gathered them with divine intentions. You intend to work in us through this text. And so we humble our hearts before your word and we ask that you would work, that you would encourage us and convict us, that you would stir us and spur us on, that, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, that you would help us to love your word and have a confidence in what you call us to more strongly. And Lord, most of all, that if there is anyone in this room that does not know you, that that is the great work that you will do, that you will save sinners this morning, whether they're in this room or they're in their living rooms watching on. In Jesus' name, amen. Two points this morning for those of you who are taking notes. The first one is, in this great promise, we, we are called to remember God's faithfulness 
in the past. This, this, this text is about mission. The book of Haggai is about mission. It's about God and his mission. And so this morning we are going to see that there is a call here in this promise to remember God's faithfulness and then second, to cling to God's promise for the future. To remember God's faithfulness in the past and to cling to God's promise for the future. So let's look at this first point. You probably know this by now, but Haggai is a forward-looking book. The future temple, the future glory, the future of God's people. It's a forward-looking book about a people who didn't have much certainty about the future. It's a forward-looking book about people who didn't have much confidence about the future. They were back in the promised land. That's good. After so many years of exile, the temple construction was finally underway after being neglected for so long. That's good. Yet, they wondered, will it ever be the same? Do we have a future as God's people? What if King Darius turns on us? Is it even worth rebuilding the house of the Lord? Real questions. And the final word of Haggai is meant to be a resounding yes. I have a plan for your Future and, and God reveals his plan in these verses, but he reveals his plan for the future in a way that highlights his faithfulness in the past. As he points them forward, he calls them to look backward. Notice verse 21 and 22. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by their sword. In essence, God says this. He says, here's my plan. Political prowess, the political prowess and the military might that once offered solace and stability, I will destroy it. It's an ominous plan. (laughs) I wonder what the people thought. It's an ominous plan. But you know what? God's people knew their history. And the language of of verses 21 And 22, the language of this plan would have and was meant to evoke God's activity and Israel's past. It's in the past that God overthrew, same word there, same word in the Hebrew, that same word that that numerous places where the Old Testament talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, we find this Hebrew word for overthrew. In the past, God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the cities. 
in an expression of his unlimited and unmatched power to bring justice through, through the judgment of the wicked. At the heart of Israel's past was that famous day when God saved his people by overthrowing and destroying Pharaoh and his mighty armor. They wrote a song about it. Soldiers, horses, chariots, buried under the waves of the Red Sea. The very language here would have drawn the people of Haggai's day back to the past faithfulness of God. And so before this plan points the people forward to what God will do, it actually draws their attention back to what he has done. I love the way Ian Duguid says, talks about this. He says, by using this traditional language, he's talking about overthrow and destroy, and the Lord reminded his people how in the past he had established his power to act to judge the wicked and save his people. These actions were a matter of history and record, proof of God's ability to deliver his own. So this ominous plan actually offers a hopeful future that begins by looking at the past faithfulness of God. And I just want to pause here for a moment. It can be difficult to see this language. God says, I will destroy, I will overthrow. It's hard to grasp, get our hands, what, what, what? God will do this? And I would just submit to you, if you wrestle with that, that that's a real wrestling match. But I want to encourage you. It's difficult for us to get our hands around an ominous plan crafted and carried out by God himself because we don't really understand God. <laughs> the Bible puts forth God as holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see a, a, a thrice description of the Lord. It never says that God is merciful, merciful, merciful. It never says that he is faithful, faithful, faithful. It says that he is Holy, 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 meaning that, that he is completely unlike us. He is completely other than us. He is completely above, transcendent is the word, above his creation. It's why the prophet Isaiah said, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And as the holy, holy, holy creator and sustainer of this world, well, the creation is accountable to him. And so understanding the God that we serve, who he is and what he is like, is important if you're grappling with this ominous plan. But, but here's what I want us all to see above all things. This plan it was the kindness of God to Haggai and the people. It was the kindness of God to a struggling people who were grasping to, to find a hope for the future. And he comes to them and he says, he doesn't just say, believe me. No, he points them back 
to his work. He says, do you see how I have worked on your behalf? How I have, my power has always been sufficient to save you. He points them back so that they can see his faithfulness as a way to equip them for the future. And I think, the, I think there's something for us here. Listen, remembering is a key to the Christian life. I believe remembering is a, is a discipline that we should all practice and get really good at. How often do you, do you just sit and, and muse over God's past faithfulness in your life? When you're with somebody and they're struggling, how often do you just say, hey, can, you just, can we just talk about where we've seen God's work in your life in the past? Can I remind you of the God who's in control? Can I remind you how he has been faithful to you over the years? I know that Scott McLeod, Scott and Teresa are on vacation. They're not here this morning, but so this is a good time to do this. Scott always hates it when I do this. <laughs> you know, Scott, there have been moments in the history of our church where Tim knows this. I can get anxious about church finances. And there's just been moments where Scott has just said, hey, God has always been faithful, hasn't he? We're still here. (laughs) We saw his faithfulness, didn't we, this last year when we were able to provide for most of the year's budget in the Bolivia, in Santa Cruz, Bolivia's church plant. We've seen God's faithfulness. Scott McLeod is a man who points me to the past faithfulness of God. Do you point others to the past faithfulness of God? See, the temptation can be just to tell each other what we need to start doing, (laughs) what needs to be done, how we need to be, and and perhaps even to, to look and see how much headway I've made. But it's about, it's not about my headway, it's about God's faithfulness, his faithful work. So let us be a church that practices the discipline of remembering the faithfulness of God. It's exactly what God points his people in Haggai to. But he doesn't leave us there. He didn't leave the people of Haggai there. He gives them a promise. This is a promise. It is future-looking. Make no mistake about it. Notice how verse 23 begins. This is our second point. Cling to God's promise for the future. Remember, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Cling to God's promise for the future. Notice how verse 23 begins. He says, on that day. What is that day? Well, certainly, it's the day when God will do all that he just described in verses 21 through 22. That's not rocket science, right? But what day will that be? Haggai doesn't say. The the word that comes from the Lord doesn't have too many details about times and places. But what he does offer is hope 
that as God's people wait for the promised day of the Lord, they can be sure that God will act. And this is where the word turns to a man. The word turns to a man named Zerubbabel. And we need to understand why. Key to staying on mission. Key to, to, as a church, not getting distracted by all the noise in this world. It's not found in here. It's not found here. It's found in the meaning of verse 23. Look what it says. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will make you Zerubbabel, like a signet ring. What is a signet ring? (laughs) A signet ring was a treasured possession of the king. It was a small piece of jewelry, either a ring or sometimes worn on a necklace. It, it, It was guarded and protected by the king. And And etched into it was the king's symbol, the mark of the king, if you will. If I had a signet ring today, it would probably have a bronco head on it. Or perhaps the Indian motorcycle logo, something like that. The symbol, whatever it was conveyed authenticity and authority. For example, if if the king put out a royal edict, it was sealed by the king's signet into a, a, a drop of hot wax. And what that seal did, that that royal mark meant you could take whatever was in that document to the bank, so let it be said So let it be written, so let it be done. The signet ring communicated authority, confidence, certainty. On that day, God will take Zerubbabel, his chosen servant, and make him like a signet ring. That's significant, and here's why? Don't turn here, but first, in Psalm 2, if you're familiar with Psalm 2, God promised to establish and sustain the throne of David. Even as the nations raged, verse 1, even as the kingdoms plotted against the God and his people, God made a promise to his people. that he would sustain the Davidic line. In fact, pointing even farther ahead, that he would set his king 
on Zion, the holy hill. If you were an Old Testament people of God, you clung to Psalm 2. You clung to that promise. However, in Jeremiah 22, Haggai's people are on this side of the exile, but Jeremiah was prophesying on the front end. In Jeremiah 22, God actually condemns his king, saying in verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, through Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into, listen, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of Chaldeans. Translation, the Davidic line will be cut off. The signet ring ripped from the finger. David's throne is done. And the exile will be the proof. Jeremiah 22 was devastating for God's people. For a people who clung to the promise of Psalm 2, this was devastating. The Davidic king executed God's authority. He represented God's interests among his people. And now, on this side of the exile, perhaps with Jeremiah 22 in their mind, God's people wondered, how's all this going to work out? Without a promised Davidic line. For centuries, we've been clinging to the promise of Psalm 2. But Jeremiah's prophecy of judgment and the exile that they have now come out of would seem to make that promise null and void. Here's a connection I want you to make. God's promise to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring was a promise to reestablish the throne of David. Notice the book ends right here. I will reestablish the throne of David. The end. <laughs> the book of Haggai ends on this promise. And what a promise, what a happy ending it is. Is God is faithful. God is with us. We have meaning. We now have purpose again, and we have a hopeful future as the people of God. So, guess what, Haggai? Let's get to work on the temple. <laughs> Let's keep building. Let's stay focused because God has promised a future and a hope through His servant. Zerubbabel. It's the end of the book. But it's not the end of the story. See, it's easy to feel disconnected, isn't it, from God's people in Haggai? 2,500 years. How many days is that? 
But their story is our story. Their story actually isn't over. The book is over, but the story isn't over. In fact, their story, their mission to rebuild that temple, what God called them to 2,500 years ago, they could never have imagined what verse 23 truly meant. See, the truth is, the promise wasn't about Zerubbabel or rebuilding of the temple. Truth be told, if you study Zerubbabel, he didn't do much. <laughs> Nothing much happened. This is, this is, uh, this is uh, 520 B.C. It's not very long before we go into the intertestamental periods, and God is silent. This wasn't about Zerubbabel. This wasn't about rebuilding of the temple. It was about God and his mission to bring salvation to the world. That's how the book of Haggai ends. It's about God and his mission to bring salvation to the world. And Zerubbabel was a sign that pointed to that work. In fact, he was a type that pointed to Christ. Go read the genealogies this week in Matthew and Luke, okay? It's almost Christmas time. We read the genealogies Christmas time, right? If, if Walmart and Target are coming out the Christmas trees, we can read the genealogies early, right? But go read the genealogies this week. You'll find the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll find the great kings David, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And do you know who else you'll find in the Messianic family tree? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel points us forward. For us, it's backward to the eternal king. 500 years after Zerubbabel, we find God still faithfully advancing his mission, not through a prophet, not through a temple built with human hands, but through his son, Jesus Christ, whose mission is clearly defined. The mission of Jesus was not only pointed to in Haggai, it is clearly defined for us by another prophet. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The mission of Haggai and his people lead to the mission of Jesus that included his perfect life, that included his miraculous resurrection, but at the heart of it was his sin-atoning death. That's where Spur Spurgeon is famous for saying, pick a text in the Bible and I'll make a beeline for the cross. Well, guess where you go after Haggai 2.23? You go right to Isaiah 53. The servant, the one whom God chose, his mission was to be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And listen, this is, 
this is the most power. Listen, the most we've been talking about staying focused on our gospel mission over the past few weeks. The most powerful remedy for our misguided priorities is not learning a new habit. It's learning what really happened in the gospel. It's learning what really happened at the cross. God made you his in the death of his son. Not simply so that we can live free, but so that we can live for him, which ultimately is true freedom, (laughs) because it is to live as we were created to live. To be on mission for Christ through the church is to live as we were created to live. There's so much talk about freedom nowadays. There's so much talk about poisonous politics and and overreaching government, and, and I get all that, and we all have opinions on that. Here's true freedom. It's found in the mission that Jesus Christ accomplished with his life and death. And next week, as we begin a series in Acts to to remember, we, we will be remembering, we will be seeing the gospel mission sweep across the known world as the Holy Spirit builds his church through the power and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will be looking back. Why? So that we can see the faithfulness of God. And have hope for our own future. From Abraham to David to Zerubbabel to Jesus to the apostles to us. How how do you think we got here? Read Haggai. (laughs) Read Isaiah. Read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Read Ephesians 2. For, but God, but a God who is merciful. Here we are now, 2021. We have mercifully been made objects of Jesus' mission at the cross, and now by grace, we are participants in that mission. Because God made you his, like the people of Haggai, we wait for that day with hope. Just as, listen, God didn't tell Israel to do anything in these verses. He just said there's coming a day. There's, There's coming a day. So what should we conclude from that? We should conclude that above, that over all things, God said, I want you to wait with hope. Wait with hope for that day when I will shake the heaven and the earth, that day where I will put the nations and kingdoms in their place as he establishes his eternal kingdom under the full rule and reign of our Lord and Savior. Jesus is coming back soon. 
This is all going somewhere. This is all moving somewhere. What we do now, it's not insignificant. The promise to Haggai, we are moving toward it. What you do right now matters. The way you give yourself to the gospel mission matters. paraphrase R.C. Sproul. He said something like this. I hope I don't butcher it. He said, right now matters forever. If right now only matters right now, then right now doesn't matter at all because right now is over. (laughs) But right now counts for eternity. Why? Because there is a forever. God and the gospel have established that there is a forever. Therefore, right now counts forever. The mission right now counts forever. It doesn't matter how insignificant we may feel. It doesn't matter how irrelevant we feel we may be getting. Right now matters, not just for right now. It matters forever. We don't even, can't even begin to understand like the people in the day of Haggai, what is coming? Oh, we can look to God's word and in his mercy, he gives us glimpses, but, but it is unfathomable to us. And what is coming? This mission that, listen, it is hard to be on mission for Christ, isn't it? It is not easy. We have the the temptations of the world. We have Satan who's prowling around like a lion wanting to devour us. And then we have this thing in here called the heart that still has the effects of indwelling sin. It is not easy being on mission, and this is why God says, look back to the cross and look forward to the promise that I have made. And when we see the cross and we see the eternal throne of God, you know what? It tells us, no, right now matters for more than just right now. Our mission right now counts, and that's what we are on. We are on Mission. Listen, listen. We are on mission right now. When we gather on Sundays, this is this we are on mission. This is a, a time when God uniquely makes Himself known through our singing and our prayers, and in particular the preaching of His Word. Why? So we have something to do. No, for the purpose of his exaltation through us and our transformation in him in a way that is public and people can see it. It counts. It counts. What we're doing right now matters. Now listen, let's be clear. Our mission is much more than a Sunday morning meeting. Okay? And I'm speaking to myself here. I've loved Sundays ever since I was saved. <laughs> but 
this is not all the mission includes. We are on mission when we gather in community groups and small group ministries in one another's home to encourage one another and sharpen one another through Christ-centered fellowship. We are on mission when we gather in one another's homes as two families encouraging one another. That matters. That counts. It's part of our mission. But our mission is more than Sunday mornings and fellowship. We are on mission when we, when we go out into our city positioned for opportunities to share Christ with our neighbors and our co-workers and our schools and the soccer fields and motorcycle Mark that I keep meeting at Starbucks and motorcycle Mike who lives in my neighborhood and my wife's brother who lives in Phoenix. It's the mission. In two weeks, David and his wife Hardway will be here from Bolivia. They want to thank you personally for how generously you gave to the church plant down there. They're going to thank you for being on mission with them. Even though you may never see faces, you may never know names, you may never darken their building. What you gave matters. It's part of the mission. The book of Haggai reminds us that to belong to God is to be on mission. It's not about us, and it's not even our mission. We were the recipients of Christ's missional work. And now we have the privilege to participate in that mission. But make no mistake, we aren't just doing church. We aren't just being the church. We love to say that, being the church. We are on mission. And we have no idea how much bigger than us this mission is. Christian life is a mission. God's purpose, God's glory, God's priorities, God's provision, God's glory. So let me ask you a very simple question. What is hindering you in the mission? What is it? What is hindering you in the mission to make Christ known with your words and your life. Identify it. Share it. Repent of it. Hebrews 4 says that because we have a high priest in Jesus Christ, we can approach his throne with confidence knowing that we will find mercy. You know what that means? It means whatever you have replaced God's mission with, he will not turn you away as you come to him to repent. He will show you mercy, and he doesn't stop there. He will give you grace that fits the need. 
meaning he will pour out his grace exactly in the manner in which you need it. And then in the power of the Spirit, give yourself to the mission. Give yourself to this mission, the mission of your local church with God's past work in Jesus and his future promise of Jesus' return in full view. Listen to how Ian Duguid says this. He says, so like Zerubbabel, we must labor on in our faith and hope, hoping simply to hear the words of our God, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Those words will make worthwhile whatever trials have faced us in the meantime as we see God establish the work of our hands by bringing himself glory through us. Most rewardingly of all, though we will see Jesus, we will see Jesus lifted up. At the end of time, we will see Christ exalted to the place that he deserves as the name that is over every name. We will see his enemies made into a footstool before his throne. We will see his kingdom come in all its fullness. Are you eagerly looking forward to that sight? Do you see yourself merely as a faithful servant ready to welcome your master whenever Christ returns? Is your mind firmly fixed on the things above, the glories that are to be revealed? In that case... Cry out with all the faithful of all ages. Bring on the day. Shake the heavens and the earth. Oh God, hasten back, Lord Jesus, to claim your crown and to deliver your people and to you be all 